You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament, and ready to study God's Word together in the series we call, We Are All Witnesses, Part 3. Hi, it's great to see you. It's great to be seen. Um... Listen, you're going to need a Bible, and you're going to need to open it to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Uh, we're going to look at the first 18 verses today. Acts 14, verses 1 to 18. Um, when we last left our heroes, they were traveling. And by heroes, I mean the Apostle Paul, and I mean uh, Barnabas, his buddy. And they were traveling uh, On their first mission trip, if you've ever been on a mission trip or anything like that or traveled uh, extensively yourself, maybe you've gone to the UK or you maybe gone to Europe at one point. If you were lucky, you went to New Zealand and you traveled from place to place to place to place. You got your little map out, maybe on your Google or whatever, and you had a look at where it was that you were planning on going next. Uh, This right here is, I I draw that because they came across the water to this area right here. This is a place called Pamphylia, and then they traveled up here to City Antioch, and then over here to Iconium and Lystra. This is the area that we're talking about today, okay? You're like, thanks for the map. It's really helpful, but you don't think that. I know, I know, and again, I'm just trying to show you this is, these are real places. You can go to there today, but here's what I want to do in the next few minutes. I want to look at this passage in Acts chapter 14, verses 1 to 18. And I actually just want to tell you the whole story of what's going on here. And then right after that, I want to give you uh, just three things I think we can learn. So really straightforward. Uh, let me tell a story to you. This is a fascinating little story. It's got a really interesting background to it uh, that you wouldn't know had you just kind of passed by it. But I think that the background will help you understand a lot of what's going on in it. So here is the story itself. Acts chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. Now at Iconium, I just showed you where that was. It's that little, it's a city actually in the interior of, uh, away, from the, away from the sea. And Iconium, it's not a small city though. It's relatively large for that region. Now, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, which is of course the way that they always did their Worship or the, their preaching, they would go to the Jews first, and then if the Jews rejected them, they'd go to the, to the Gentiles, and so they head out to the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed, and the, the Jews and the Greeks would have been part of the synagogue, there's some Greek God-fearers in the back row, and then there's some Jews just in the synagogue itself, and so this is, a, this is the pattern. They show up at a synagogue, they preach, some people believe from both Jew and Greek, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, this is the uh, local government basically, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, which is an interesting thing to do, right? If the local government is poisoned against you and they're starting to think about what they might want to do to you, the last thing you probably would do is stay for a long time. That's usually the sign for me to get out. But they do. They like, oh, some persecution, some opposition. We must be over the target. So they stick around for a while, speaking boldly for the Lord. They didn't, they didn't quiet down at all. They kept going for it. 
who bore witness of his grace, granting signs and wonders. So God bore witness of his, the word of his grace. And, he, and the way he did that is he granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. It was very common for these guys when they would go out and they would proclaim the gospel that along with the proclamation of the gospel, what they'd have is a lot of healings and uh, de- basically exorcisms. They would be delivering people from demon possession. Now, you can imagine if somebody came into your town and uh, local people who had been sick their whole lives were getting healed and people who you didn't know were demon-possessed or maybe they just acted uh, really uh, violent or something, they were getting freed from demon possession. You would probably think the people who were doing those things had, a, had an in with the spiritual powers, which is exactly what they thought. So... They grant, God grants signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews. You know, those Gentiles that they riled up beforehand, the local government. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Because, you know, who's not excited about seeing healings? Who's not excited about seeing demons come out of people? So when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia. Isn't that weird? It's it's a little bit weird to me. Like, how do you determine whether or not you're going to stick around, which they did prior, and how do you know when you're going to leave? I know some missionaries, actually. This is a major problem for them. They go to different parts of the world, and maybe I knew some people who were working in India, in the northern part of India, among some militant Hindus. And one of the things that they had a really hard time figuring out was uh, when the persecution, and it always came, when the persecution from those groups came, do you, do you stay, right? Because we're over the target. Or do you leave? And missionaries the world over, have struggled with this. There are some who stick around and it leads sometimes to their death or it leads sometimes to a lot of abuse and pain and heartache. And we look at it now and say, "How would they? why would you ever do that? It's kind of William Carey, who was one of the first missionaries and father of modern missions is what we call him. And he dragged his wife out there and she hated it, but they stuck around because he was like, yeah, this is the faithful thing to do. And yet, sometimes it's faithful to flee right? If you want to stone me to death, see ya. I'm not sticking around. So they had to make the same choices. And the first part, they're like, no, we're sticking around for a long time. And in this last part, they're like, we're going to flee to to Lystra. This is an important little town. Uh, When I say important, I don't mean in the eyes of anybody else around the world. (laughs) Lystra was a, a nothing burger, it was, a, it was a, like a full day's journey off of the main road. So, I, I don't know. Think about places you've gone, and maybe you have a cousin who lives in some little town somewhere, and you drove along, and you thought as you got off the highway, we're there. And then you're, an hour later, you're like, what? Where are we? And the answer is Rockford. I'm kidding. Again, the Rockford jokes, they come up. And they went to the surrounding country, right? And this is a great word for it. They went to the country. 
And there they continue to preach the gospel. So not like they're going from city to city to city to city. They are, but when the persecution comes, quite honestly, it's the thing that kicks them out to the farmland. So off they go into Lystra. And at Lystra, here's what happened. There was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was important, crippled from birth. What's about to happen to this guy is a big deal. Everybody knows everybody in a small town, right? I mean, it's part of the reason that people from small towns are often like, I can't wait to get to this city where, where, you know, what I buy at the grocery store is none of your business. Or whether or not my daughter is dating so-and-so's son is like known by everybody. Other people in the cities are like, oh, I long to be known like that. No, you don't. I'm just telling you, I lived in this one. You don't want to be known that well. This guy crippled from birth in this small town, okay? In fact, I have a picture right here of what it looked like. I gave you the picture because I was like, yeah, see, it's nothing. Well, if you drove by there, you'd be like, well, something really important happened here once. No, it didn't. But this is where Lystra was. The town was right along here. All those days ago, you can walk on a dirt road to it today. So we're talking, you know, literally out in the sticks. At Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. Everybody would have known him. He was crippled from birth. Oh, he's little Jimmy. He's just a boy who unfortunately never was able to walk. Poor him. He was never able to join the track team. He listened, though, to Paul speaking. And Paul... This is the second time in the book of Acts Paul looks intently at people. Just be careful if Paul looks intently at you is all I got to say, right? If that guy's staring at you, you're like, look away, right? Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, I know what that means. I don't know, like, did he have an expectation in his face or something, whatever. He was so excited about what Paul was saying and so hopeful because of these signs and wonders that Paul had been doing as they proclaimed the gospel. That maybe, maybe, just maybe, he, he could be the recipient of something amazing today. And seeing that he faith to be made well, he said, Paul said in a loud voice, there's no whispering here, stand upright on your feet. Get up. I love this, Lang. He sprang up. Of course he did. Right? If you've not been able to use your feet all those years and all of a sudden somebody gives you the old, the old healing injection there. <laughs> I'm ready to go. He probably took off running. Well, he began walking around. And people, of course, would have been massively, massively amazed at all of this. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, this is their native language. They're, you know, if you live out in the country, you oftentimes stick to what, what worked for your, your grandpappies. And grandmammies, you, 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 it's not the first place for the trends to hit, right? So if, if you have a Roman world that's largely speaking Greek, you might, when you get into smaller towns, you might find, you might find a lot of people speak Greek, but they also have like a native dialect. You, you know this when you go to, you know, we, we do it with, with the South. Uh, I don't know why, but we do it in the South. And I say, hey, you, I have a friend. He's from the, he's from like, an, two hours off the main road in Mississippi, and you'd say, oh, is he? Right? I, listen, if you're from Mississippi, that's not how you sound. I'm just telling you that's how people in Seattle think you sound. 
But the idea is, of course, because you, you, know, you don't speak that often with people of other uh, dialects or, or there's not a common language there uh, that you use that's like the New Yorkers or whatever. And so as a result, you stick with the dialect that, that you got. It's the way it is the world over. So they, they still speak in Laconian there. And what they say is the gods have come down to us in likeness of men. The gods have. Which gods? Well, Barnabas, they called Zeus. Remember high school? They taught you about Zeus and Aphrodite and no? No, that was the day you missed. Uh, yeah, Zeus was the guy with the big lightning bolt. He was the god, the, the, the highest god of the Roman pantheon. The Greek and Rome, Greco-Roman pantheon. Hermes was his messenger. So, so he is the highest god among the gods. And Hermes was the guy he would send out. Okay, so, so they think Zeus is Barnabas because he's not talking. And they think Paul is Hermes because he was talking. You know, Zeus doesn't need to talk. He can stand over in the distance. Hey, get in there, Hermes. And Paul's preaching. Why would they think that they're them? Okay, so here's the interesting background to this story. There is, in the first century, a poem that was written by a guy named Ovid. Great name for your kids, ladies. Ovid. Um, it was called Metamorphoses. That was the poem. Ovid's Metamorphoses. In the poem, the poem is basically about Zeus and Hermes. And Zeus and Hermes come and take human form, and they come down to a small town, and they go door to door. They go to a thousand different doors, and they ask for hospitality. This is me, I'm Zeusner, and this is my friend Hermetocles, I don't know, whatever, and we would like to have a place to stay tonight. Do you have room for us? And they were spurned at every house. Finally, they came to the house of a dear elderly couple. And that elderly couple said to them, please come in, share what we have. It's not much, but you will be, you'll be welcome here. So Zeus and Hermes stay the night. The next morning they wake up and woo, you know, pull off the human. And here's Zeus with the lightning bolt. And these folks are like, oh my goodness. And Zeus and Hermes say, come with us. And they go to the top of a hill. By the way, this is the hill they're talking about. Something like that, right? So they go to the top of a hill. Uh, and they go to the top of the hill. And um, Zeus says, see all the, the houses and all the people who turned us aside? Watch, and a flood comes rushing down and destroys everybody. Now, the moral to the story is you better be nice to people when they come to your door. When strangers show up, 
you should be really, really kind to them and show them hospitality the most they can. Zeus and Hermes are really good at hiding things, but occasionally, you know, the gods, when they do take up on, take on, on human form, they will reveal themselves in one way or another, right? Might be how they talk. Might be the kinds of things they do. So here's the situation you've got. This is a story that sits in the background in the first century for people like this. And along come a guy and his friend, total strangers. They're, they're speaking things that you might not have heard before. They're talking about a different God or whatever. But the big thing they do is that the guy who you've known your whole life, little Jimmy, who's never been on the track team, is sitting there and hopeful that they might receive something from them. And this Paul, this God, speaks in a loud, godlike voice. Raise, you know, get up. And he springs up to his feet. What are you thinking? You know what you're thinking. Oh my goodness, he totally just blew his cover. <laughs> it's Zeus, it's Hermes. And we're not gonna make the same mistake they did. So what are we gonna do? Well, uh, the, priest of, <laughs> the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, he brought oxen and garlands to the gates and he wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Listen, nothing's gonna say you're welcome here more than killing a, an animal, so bring them. Put a wreath on them to show them that these are the good ones. So they do, they bring them all out. They're gonna, they're gonna kill the, the fatted calf. Now when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they, they tore their garments. Again, you see this all over the scriptures, right? People tear their garments when they want to match what's going on outside with what's going on inside, right? Actually, saw this silly video the other day about a guy who is getting in a fight on a golf course, and uh, he was he was having an argument with the other group that was like in front of him or behind him or something, and finally he he just was so mad he ripped his shirt off and he just stood <laughs> stood there in the golf course, you know. And I'm like, yeah, see, like that, we do it. You get good and mad, oh, that's it, you know? You rip your shirt off. I'm so angry, I'm gonna show you my muscles. They tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out, man, wh why are you doing these things? What are you thinking? We, we also are of men, of like nature with you. Dude, I'm just, we're just like you. We're, like, we're not Zeus, we're not Hermes. And we bring you a gospel. We, we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God. What things? The, the oxen and the wreath and the Zeus and the Hermes. You should turn from these vain, empty, meaningless things to a living God. Why is God living? Because yours are dead. I know you think that they're real, but they're not. 
They're not real. They can't do for you what you think. Do you guys remember the Old Testament, the story about Elijah? And uh, he goes up onto a mountain. He basically wants to have a competition. Uh, Jezebel and Ahab are in the palace. And Elijah says, that's it. I'm sick of you guys worshiping this God that you call Baal. We're going to have a contest. We're going to go up on a mountain called Carmel. And you guys are going to get together. And you're going to pray to your God. And I'll pray to my God. And we'll see which God answers, right? Until, of course, they get up there. And the, the guys who go first are the 400 prophets of Baal. And they're, and they're like bouncing around. Baal, 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 Baal. Like all morning long. In a circle around, this is how they used to do these things, right? They, in a circle around the altar. Oh, answer us, Baal. Oh, answer us, Baal. Elijah actually gets, uh, gets so, so um, trolly about it. He's sitting over on the side, and he's like, yes, preach louder. Maybe he can hear you. He probably went on a trip. He's probably on a beach, and he can't hear you because the ocean noise. Maybe he's, literally, maybe he's on the toilet. He actually says that to him. Why is Elijah saying this? Because uh, the God, Baal, is vain, and he's about to pray to a living God. There's only one living God. All the others are vain. So Paul tells him this. Look, you, you need to turn away from this stuff that you're trying to do for us. This living God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Look, in past generations, he's allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. It's not like God didn't have anything to say to you. It was evident for you, for he did good. He did good, how? By giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. Uh, prosperity. He made the markets go up. He made it so that you could have a house. He made it so that you could have a, a family. He made it so that you could have health. He made it so that everything around you has been taken care of largely. He was satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You know, every moment that you were sitting there thinking to yourself, man, this was a great meal, you know, and you unbutton your pants there and you've had a lovely steak or whatever it is. That moment was given you by God. It was a sign to you that he's present in your life. Whether you believed in him or not, whether you called your gods and you were blaspheming by following idols called Zeus and Hermes or not, the true living God actually was the one who was all along providing for you. But even with these words, they, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them, probably because the people are like, Zeus and Hermes are tricky now. We're not going to buy. We're not going to fall for this. Remember the flood? So, that's the story. What do we learn? There's so many things that I would love to point out here, but, you know, they put me on a clock, so. Here's the first one. God is good all the time. Right, I mean, at the end of this, it's essentially what Paul's saying to them. That, look, if you want to see whether or not there's been a, whether or not God's been in your life, you need to recognize the good things that he, he has given 
you? Have you ever noticed how good God has been to you? And listen, I'm not just talking to people here who profess faith in Christ, man. I don't know where you are in the spiritual journey. Maybe you're like, nah, this is all rubbish. My mom invited me and I have to be here. Tell more jokes. If that's your background or wherever it is that you are on the spiritual progression, I, I gotta tell you, it, it doesn't really matter because God has called the cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. That all the things that have happened in your life, no matter who you are, the fact that you're human, all of the things that have happened in your life that has brought joy and gladness to your heart are a result of the living God. You, you might have even blasphemed his name and think he's an, stupid and Christians who believe in him are, are ridiculous. Did you know like this, this same God, it says in Colossians 1 that, that, that Jesus was before all things, and in, all, in him all things hold together. Meaning that the molecules of your body, according to the Bible, the molecules of your body are being held together at the very same moment that you're blaspheming him. Your body is able to form the words because of the sustaining power of God, whose kindness and grace is being shown to you by letting you say the words. You ever just stopped and thought about all the cool things that are in your life? I was told, we were told, my wife and I, um, we had had uh, two sons. We had um, a miscarriage, a son. Three years later, a son. Three years later, a late miscarriage. Uh, and then three years later, my daughter, Sophie. When we had the late miscarriage, you know, you go see the doctor and the doctor tells you, listen, man, there's no hope for you to have no other kids. You know, you just, you're infertile. Well, how did we have these other two? He's like, dude, I don't know. You, sh you probably shouldn't have. We, th we thought when we first had the first miscarriage that was, we weren't gonna have kids and the Lord, of course, blessed us with uh, both our boys. And then three years later, this, this late miscarriage just crushed us. We were in New Zealand. I remember my wife laying on the bed crying her eyes out. I remember her crying and me crying because we couldn't have any more children. We just said, Lord, you know what? All these things in your hands, it's, it's, it's fine. And then, like out of nowhere, I came home one day and my, my wife said, uh, she gave me a little, uh, a little packet and inside was the little, you know, tester that she had tested. Because she didn't want to let me know because, you know, this, this was sort of crazy. And uh, inside was the little tester and a note. And the note said, uh, roses are red, violets are pink. And that's a color you better get used to. Because she apparently found out. Like she, I was like, oh, I couldn't believe. Now listen, I got to tell you, um, when my daughter was little, and I'd come home from work, she would stand at the top of the stairs and she'd come to the stop of the stairs and she'd spin around and start saying, daddy, 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 daddy. And I would stop at the little landing at the bottom and I'd look at this girl and I just would think to myself, I, how good is God? We went to uh, this this last summer, um, we, we went to the College World Series. The reason we were there is because my son plays for Louisiana State University. 
Uh, in fact, last year, he had a hard time a little bit. He was a freshman. They don't really play a lot of freshmen at LSU because they're really good. They were the number one ranked team in the country. But how many times have you been cheering for a team and they've actually done it, right? And every Bears fan said, yeah, 85. Once, <laughs> like one time. Right, it doesn't happen very often, right? And you get to the point, you Packer fans, where you realize that you might have hope, but it's gonna be dashed at the last minute, right? Of course it is. That's, that's even worse. They just kick you in the stomach at the end. So look, I, I was not expecting much, but I couldn't believe it. They made it to the College World Series. And so we said, we're going to Omaha. We went over to Omaha and we spent some time there. We stayed in this little town called Minden, which is a half hour away from Omaha. And it was basically a Lystra. It was out in the middle of nowhere. But it was the only place we could get that was even re reasonably priced. It was a, a grotty motel. But we drove from there each day into, the, into, into Omaha where we would watch Louisiana State University play baseball. And they won. They kept winning. And then one game, they lost. And it was so heartbreaking because we couldn't believe it. it was just so late and they should have done it. No. And then we were thinking, oh, the team they lost to is like the new number one. And then a couple days later, we had to play them again. And this time we got to play them. And whoever wins, it's going to go to the final. And so... We play in them, and it's even all the way through the 11th inning. By the way, nine innings in baseball. And then our guy, our best hitter, stands up, and out of nowhere, they have a new pitcher. He throws them a fastball, boom, off the left field. And I honestly faint. I nearly fainted. I should show you videos of it. Have you ever had, like, the world closing in on you because your heart's racing so much? It was unbelievable. I'm not, honestly, a few minutes later, I was standing there saying, Lord, how good is this? Right? I mean, wow, it's amazing. What an experience. I, I drove my car here today, which is weird because usually I ride a scooter, but you know, it's raining. I'm not going to do that. I'm not that crazy. My car worked. I got in it. I didn't even have to turn the key. I could push the button. It worked. It started, I, came, I came here. There's an accident, actually, just out on the road here, outside the church. I wasn't in that accident. Isn't that crazy? Like there's, have you guys ever seen how people drive in Illinois? And I, I wasn't in an accident today. My car held up. I was able to keep going. I got breath in my lungs right now. I've got, my heart's going. My brain is working. I don't know, 70% good. I don't, but here we are. Here you are. Here we all are. Amen. Yes. God's pretty good. All the good in my life is because of God. He shows goodness to those who love him and to those who don't. See, I make a big deal about this because it's, it's actually, we're, we're fickle, right? We usually look at it the other way, Right? Oh yeah, because God is so consistently good in our lives and the stuff that I just mentioned, I mean, it's the last time you got to a location and said, Lord, thank you, I didn't die. I mean, we, we, we so regularly get to the destinations that we're expecting to get to, right? The spring comes every year. It's so regular that we get to the point where we're like, yeah, yeah, no big deal, but these are the issues and well, I'm so worried about this and these other things, right? And so when we talk to our friends or to our family, we talk about those things, those problems, the ways that it feels like God's not being good, or how it is that he's not answering our prayer exactly how we want in that particular moment. 
And so there sneaks into our minds this idea that God kind of ruins things. Like, if he were really good, he would have given me the thing I wanted when I asked so persistently for it. If he were really good, he wouldn't be up there in heaven with his like cosmic killjoy, you know, Zeus-like lightning bolt ready to bash me on the head when I do things wrong. But those are pictures in our heads about what God kind of is like, and yet the <laughs> our whole lives prove it otherwise. You know that that was the first thing that, they, that the serpent said about, about God, right? The garden, Adam and Eve. Like his main point was, was that. Here's the command that was given to Adam. Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Look how good I am. Adam, look as far as the eye can see. What do you see? Oh, trees and fruit. Eat it all, brother. Except for the little one over there. But of the tree of the knowledge, good and evil, you shall not eat. From that day you'll eat of it, you'll surely die. Dude, you're going to die. Do you want to die? I don't know what die is. No, you don't want it. And then the serpent shows up and Eve is standing there and she's looking around. And the serpent said to her, did God actually say you'll surely, you shall not eat, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Wait a minute, you sneaky little snake. Uh, God's focus was on all the freedom and the good things. And his focus is on the little tiny thing that you could say, I don't think God's good because he's limiting you from that. Woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the gar- trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And neither shall you touch it. Women. Just kidding. Right? <laughs> we did. The- Lest you die. That's not, wait, that's not, what, that's not what he said. But she's buying into it. Because we're really good at buying into the idea that God's holding something back from us that we really need or want. Ah, you're you're not going to (laughs) die. Because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened. And you're going to be like God. See, he's, he's stingy, this God. He's trying to limit your knowledge. He's trying to limit who you can be. If you were really good, he would give you all the trees of the garden. But he didn't give you that one over there. And that means he's not... He's not good, and they bought it, and we buy it. And it's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell, literally. Because he's good. What he gives is good. His plans are good. His ways are good. He wants your good. Look, if you're not a Christian here, this means something really important, okay? Uh, Your life is filled with the patience and kindness of a good God. Your whole life is. Now, here's the thing. God's not doing that because uh, he's like, yeah, we're cool, man. He's doing that because his patience and kindness in the midst of your wickedness is intended to bring you to what we call repentance. You're supposed to look at that and go, "Mm, maybe I should turn around to this God who's got better plans for me than I have. 
So turn around. Instead of thinking about God's ways as way beneath you. Dude, you, don't, you can't figure your life out. You know it. So stop trying to figure it out. Hold it up to God who's good and has shown you his goodness over and over and over and over and over again. But if you're a Christian, which is most people who are sitting, if you're already a Christian, you know, you and I, we probably should start practicing the art of gratitude. Because what we are like is if we have a massive, beautiful view out of our, out of our, you know, our home, and we're like, this is the most magnificent view ever, because see mountains and trees and water, and what's that tree doing over there in the corner? It's blocking that one little corner of my view, and then you're looking at it, and you're like, there's a tree there, there's still a tree there. What's up with this tree? I hate this tree. Go find out whose tree that is. We're going to cut it down. Your friends come over and be like, this is a beautiful view. Yeah, except for the tree. What are you talking about the tree? I didn't even see the tree. Oh, I see the tree. It's right there. It's all the time. And we get obsessed with the tree. Instead of looking at the beauty of, of all of it. There's this beauty in, in all of it, right? This is just a few trees. Good is so regular, we sometimes don't stop and dwell on it. I was in Zambia in this church. <laughs> the pastor would stand up, and the first thing he said from the pulpit was, God is good. And all the congregation would say, All the time. And then they'd say, All the time. And he'd say, God is good. I knew, I went to the people's houses who said that. <laughs> Their houses would fit into your kitchen. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Indeed he is. All right, second one. Um, the gospel is commonly misunderstood and must consistently be clarified. Meaning that when people talk about God and the message of what Jesus has done, we all tend to take that message and slot it into our preconceived ideas about who this God is, what he's like. That's why we think that he's not good is because we've already believed it because of all the messages in our life. This is what they were doing essentially, right? Well, we have this preconceived notion of what exists. There's Zeus and there's Hermes. And so when the guys show up, they're like, he must fit into our narrative. And they, they were like, no, that's all wrong. In fact, Paul and Barnabas are so committed to showing that it's wrong. They run out and rip their clothes and say, this is not right. That's bad news. We bring you good news. And they want to bring clarity to it. So this shows up in all sorts of places. My friend Ezra, who is uh, Kenyan, he uh, used to have friends in villages. And there was a, the Jesus film. Some of you guys remember that. There's a group called Campus Crusade for Christ for a number of years when they'd go out into Africa, they put, show the Jesus film, which is a film basically about Luke's gospel, and they uh, would show it on the side of a semi-trailer. And then afterwards, they say, does anybody want to trust Christ? And the whole village would come forward. It was amazing. They'd all come forward, and of course, then they'd pack up the next day, and they'd leave. Well, Ezra is part of uh, some of those villages and had been there. And some of the villages were where his families were. And so he was visiting one day and he saw the Jesus film and everybody went forward, including some of his aunts and uncles and stuff. And then, of course, they left the next day. And the next day, 
while the truck is driving off, the, the witch doctor came back in and said, everything they said is, is great. You guys included Jesus in there, but don't forget, don't forget the powers. Don't forget the powers. Jesus is another great power to add to the thing, but if you wanna actually have Jesus work for you, you gotta come to me and I'll do the juju, right? And everyone's like, yeah, exactly. Because what they didn't say, and it's not their fault, but what they didn't say was, yeah, come to Jesus. He's the only one. That would have struck a, that would have struck. But they slotted it in to their already existing, yeah, we have lots of gods. Jesus, add him to it, because you know, he seems pretty powerful. You know, if I were to ask you, or, or, what, what is the way that we think about God, that we take Jesus and slot him into, there's actually research that has been done in the last while about this. It's called the National Study of Youth and Religion. And the language, I've nodded up before, is called moralistic therapeutic deism. The researchers came to the conclusion after asking all sorts of kids, hey, what, tell me about God, tell me about, it didn't matter what your background was, whether you're Jewish or Christian or Buddhist or even atheist. The answers kind of were all the same. And here they were. Number one, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Even atheists would say that. Yeah, is there a God? Yeah, sure. Aren't you an atheist? Well, kind of. God wants people to be good, nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. I mean, they're all kind of the same teaching. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's what God's after is your happiness. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem, right? That's the therapeutic piece. He's basically an on-call therapist. He's ready to answer the phone whenever you need it. But he's not going to call you. Good people ultimately go to heaven when they die. These are the beliefs of most people in the United States. The vast majority of people believe that. So when you come and you say, Jesus died for their sins, you're like, yahoo, turn to Jesus, I will. Explain to me what you believe. There it is. So you're like, well, what should we do? Well, you do what Paul, and Paul did. You clarify. No, 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 no. This is not, this is not right. Christian Smith, the guy who actually was a lead researcher, he said this, the moralistic therapeutic deist God is not demanding. He actually can't be since his job is to solve our problems, make people feel good. In short, God is something like a combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves and doesn't become too personally involved in the process. Yeah, that's basically, so again, what do we do? Well, we have to clarify. Well, how, what, what do you mean? How, how are you gonna clarify that? Well, God's not just into moralism. He's not like, well, so excited that you're doing a nice thing for the lady crossing the street. Great, do the nice thing. The problem is your moralistic life is never going to match up to what the law requires. It will never. You fail at every, you're a hypocrite. Everyone's a hypocrite. 
You, me, we're guilty. We're guilty before a holy God of falling short of his law. So this is why Jesus came so that he might forgive us of our sins and become the law on our behalf. And he takes the righteous punishment and he gives us his righteousness. It's not about doing better. Remember, my friend said to me one time when I asked him, uh, are you Christian? Oh, I'm trying to be. There's no trying to be. There's no trying to be. You are and you're following Jesus, however poorly, or you're not. God doesn't want the trying to be. He wants you to accept the free gift of grace or not. God's not a Build-A-Bear. Seriously, he's not not like this, well, I like this portion of God, but this other portion of God I'm going to leave alone. It feels like it's got bones in it. I love the love, but this wrath, too much salt, throw it away. What are you talking about? God is one. All his character traits influence all the other character traits, and all of them are immensely beautiful and perfect. All of them are. He's not distant and uninvolved. Yes, is he, is he high and lifted up? Yes. Transcendent is the word we use, but he's also imminent. This transcendent, mighty, unapproachable God became a baby in a manger. He had dust on his feet. He died on a cross. He suffered what you suffer. So yes, is he far off, but he's nearer than you could ever imagine. And both of those are absolutely true. And listen, we exist for him, not him for us. I'm not the main character in the play. He is the main character in the play. And your life will be a horrible mess as long as you think that you're the main character. You're not. You're a supporting character in the story of God. So realign it. Submit to, that's the story I want to live for. That's the direction I want to go. There's joy, true joy in finding where you fit in with him. Don't you see? Be duped by our culture and its stupid views about who God is. They run over the Bible and say, well, this, this way is a lot better. No, it's not. The better way is who God really is, and you want what he really is. I have one minute left for my last one. Okay, here we go. Um, look. It is hard to escape this passage without thinking that other religions don't stack up. Um, how should we think about other religions? Well, look, there's, there's a few options, common options that people highlight. One of them is called uh, pluralism. It's the belief that everyone in the end will uh, be with God. In fact, pluralism says that all the gods are basically the same. They're all about love. They're all about whatever. You might call yours Vishnu, and we might call ours Yahweh, or you might call ours Allah. They're all the same. So the problem with the world is that people make divisions over things that are basically the same, right? So all the roads lead to the top of Mount Everest. There's another view that's called inclusivism, and this says, no, Jesus is actually... Inclusivism. Jesus is actually the, the, the... the true God, but here's what he does. He, he expects you, God expects you to, to 
respond to whatever light you have. So if the light you have is an animist view in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa, and you're responding in a faithful way to the animism, Jesus saves you even though you don't know him. Lots and lots of Christians have that particular view. Speaking of particular, that's what we call the other view. Particularism is the belief that you need to have a particular view of Jesus. You you have to actually have expressed, clear understanding of who God is in Christ. Truth in other religions exists only insofar as they echo Christianity. You need to have explicit personal faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. So here's the question. When you look at these different views, you have to say, all right, so if I'm going to take that and I'm going to come to this passage of scripture, which one? You should turn from these vain things to to the living God. Listen, I got, it sounds an awful lot like there's, there's only one way and his name is Jesus. There's only one true God, his name is Yahweh. And that all the others, the Baalism, all of the others are only true insofar as they echo the truths of Christianity. Now that gets us into a lot of hot water now, doesn't it? Because essentially what we're saying is, look, the only way to the Father is through the Son, but we shouldn't be too worried about that because basically, isn't that essentially what he said? In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I'll come again and will take you to myself, that, that, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The words of Jesus himself. At the end of the day, what this means is that uh, you and I have a responsibility, and that is to care deeply about what's happening in the world where there are billions of people who don't know the name of Jesus. Like, we, we can see this and say, yes, salvation comes through explicit faith in Christ Jesus alone, That means that billions engage in empty worship to dead gods. And if they don't respond to the gospel, they'll be eternally lost. And so as we finish here, there are really kind of three responses that you can make to that fact, that biblical fact and the way that God has ordered his world. Number one, you can look at it and say, that means that time is short and we must go and tell. We have to go and tell. We have to do whatever's necessary for the word of God to be spread as broadly as we possibly can in the hands of capable communicators of it. We need to train people up. We need to fund them in such a way that they can go. And whether it's from here or from South Korea to another part of the world or whatever, we are sending people to proclaim the gospel to those who don't know. 
The second option would be, okay, I can't do that because I have a job and all sorts of other things. Right. So you and I, we can pray and give though, right? Like if that's the main story that God's doing in the world, wouldn't we then say, okay, then the salvation of these people is paramount. And if I can't go, brother, sister, I'm going to help you go. We're going to find people who are going and blow wind in those sails and go and tell. You can pray and give. Or third, you can think about other things. We can invest, I mean, really, we can invest in our own comfort, talk about uh, our next purchase and upgrade and whether or not that's the best thing that we can do. We can figure out how many investments we need to take care of ourselves in retirement. We can even talk about how neat other faiths are. We go and travel on our luxury cruises. We can go and we can talk about how wonderful other faiths are and how great the cultures are around them. We won't look at those faiths as being dead and imprisoning to those people. It's just part of their culture. We could pass by the guy who's beaten up on the side of the road. But here's the thing. I bet you with all the people who came to faith in Christ in Lystra are pretty glad Paul and Barnabas didn't choose the third. Let me pray, Father, I'm thankful for your word. Um, I'm thankful, Father, that you have called us to such a mighty task. You are in control of all things, Lord. I pray that you'd reorient our minds around what matters to you. Uh, that you would reorient our minds around uh, what the kingdom of God is about. And that our lives would be a service to that. To the grand story of who God is and how he's working in our world. So, Lord, would you reorient us just to think well about these things, Father. We do indeed serve the living God. And so it's that life, Father, we celebrate now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org.